well, if you have your Bibles, which you should, and if you don't, there's some on the back table there. Please turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. That's the last time I get to say that, as uh, this is our last sermon in Matthew chapter 9 before we get to Matthew chapter 10. So, Matthew chapter 9, please go ahead and turn there this morning. <clears throat> William Carey is a name that uh, may or may not be familiar to you, but he's the first Baptist missionary in known history. He arrived on the shores of India in 1793. Uh, William Carey uh, was from England, and in his day it was actually controversial that the Great Commission, that, that uh, we should go into the world and make disciples and preach the gospel in foreign lands, that was actually controversial. Does that actually apply to Christians? Many thought it did not. But for Carey, he was convinced, no, Jesus' words still matter today. Eventually, William Carey would go on to form the Baptist Missionary Society, which was one of the first organizations to send missionaries to foreign lands. In fact, Carey himself would be the organization's first missionary, heading to Calcutta, India, in order to bring the gospel to the people there. In order to support his family and uh, to learn the native language, Carey uh, ran and managed two indigo plantations with a, a doctor, Dr. Thomas, who had a medical practice. Now, it was not easy. Carey labored for six years in evangelism and Bible translation without seeing a single person become a Christian. Six years of no evident fruit. His missionary partner, the doctor, ended up spending all of the support money for the missions on his medical practice and ended up eventually deserting Carey. Carey's son died of dysentery, and his wife had a nervous breakdown, at one point threatening Carey with a knife. She never recovered. Yet Carey did not give up, but continued to labor as a missionary. Why? Well, I'll tell you in his own words. He says, When I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong, but amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God, and His word is true. Though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, and the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse, though I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith fixed upon the sure word would rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial. God's cause will triumph. William Carey understood that there were many outside of England who needed to hear the gospel, but that there were so few bringing that message to them. And for Carey, a failure to engage in evangelism and in missions was incompatible with the words and the mission and the example of Jesus Christ. And in fact, in our text this morning, we will see that Jesus, out of compassion for the lost, calls his disciples to pray and labor in evangelism and missions among the harvest fields of those who do not know Christ. The question we will be confronted with is, do we count ourselves as laborers called to the field? Let's read our text, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our great and gracious God, we thank you for your holy word, for the words of Jesus Christ written down, inspired by your spirit, so that your people would read them from century to century. Lord, the Bible appears to be nothing more than a book at first glance, but Lord, as we read it, as we understand it, as we come to it as your people, we see it as not just a mere book, but that it is your word. That all we need for life and godliness is contained here. Lord, as we come to the words of Jesus Christ regarding the harvest and the laborers and the lost, convict us, Lord but encourage us. Help us to take his words seriously. Give us wisdom, Lord, in the ways that we might do so in our unique circumstances in life. Help us not to shy away from Jesus' words and teaching here, but to receive it gladly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If we were to divide this text into two chunks, we would see two main ideas. First, we see Christ's compassion for the lost. Christ's compassion for the lost. And in the second half of our text, we see Christ's call to evangelism. Christ's call to evangelism. Now, as I mentioned, we're coming to the end of Matthew chapter 9 this morning, to the end of the portion of Matthew uh, where Jesus' power and miracles have been displayed in connection with his authority. But as we reach the end of the chapter... Matthew tells us that the scope of Jesus' ministry is actually growing. Now, most of Matthew 8 and 9 is taking place in one town, in the town of Capernaum, one place. But Matthew tells us now in verse 35 that Jesus is going throughout all of the towns and cities and villages in Galilee. Uh, This circle of his ministry geographically is, is widening out. Now, to visit all the cities and villages in Galilee, that's no small feat for Jesus or for anyone else to make. There was... Uh, 204, according to the ancient historian Josephus. 204 towns, cities, villages. Which means that if Jesus took two a day, it would take him about four months to go throughout all of them. That's a lot of work. It's an immense workload, even for Jesus. Now, it's interesting because verse 35 is actually a bookend of Matthew 4.23. They say the, the same thing. If you were to turn back there, you would see, the beginning of Jesus' ministry there in verse 4, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 23. And then here, Matthew puts an end cap on it. This is a particular phase of Jesus' earthly ministry categorized by three particular activities. Now, the first that we see in verse 35 is teaching. Teaching. Matthew tells us that Jesus is teaching in the synagogues of Galilee. That's where teaching refers to teaching, right? General teaching to instruction. Uh, But in the context here, we find the word synagogue. That's where he's doing this teaching, which adds a particular kind of flavor and and context to Jesus' teaching ministry. Uh, The synagogue was the place in the the village where the Jews would gather for worship, for social events, right, uh, at times, but really to have discussion about the Old Testament scriptures. And we see this uh, being done by Jesus in Luke chapter 4, where he goes up to read from the scroll of Isaiah. And says, today this has been fulfilled in your 
hearing. He opens the Old Testament and teaches those in the synagogue how that passage actually refers to him. I suspect that was what most, if not all, of his synagogue teaching was like, showing how the Old Testament referred to him as well as teaching God's law correctly. And as a, a traveling teacher, Jesus would have had lots of opportunities to do this in the villages that had synagogues. Second, Matthew tells us that Jesus goes around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, this word proclaiming is really what we say is preaching. Same word, right? It's the public declaration of a message. Teaching is a little more back and forth, but preaching is more hear this message. Hear this message. Here is the message of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going from village to village preaching the gospel. You may remember again back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that Jesus begins to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? That was his core, most basic message, and very likely what he was preaching throughout Galilee. And finally, Matthew tells us that Jesus has been healing every disease and every affliction. Now, we've seen this extensively in Matthew 8 and 9, haven't we? We've seen the woman with the issue of blood healed. We've seen blind men healed, right? We've seen a mute man healed. We've seen the dead raised, right? We've seen a paralytic healed, right? A very long list. And Jesus continues to do that throughout the region of Galilee, healing the sick and casting out demons. Verse 35, really, again, is, is kind of a continuation of what, we'd are, what we've already seen. We've seen his teaching and preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and his healing in Matthew 8 and 9. But he's doing them in more places. And as Jesus goes from town to town, as he encounters more people, he sees more crowds. Everywhere Jesus goes, a crowd gathers. Right? That happens every single place. They want to see what he's going to do. They want to hear what he's going to say. So Jesus is encountering many different kinds of people. Matthew tells us, though, that these crowds actually elicit a response from, from Jesus. As he encounters the people of Galilee, Matthew tells us, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. Now, this word really doesn't capture the depth of what's, what's happening here, right? The word compassion refers to that deep, deep feeling of pity, of empathy, that you feel almost welling up from your stomach, right? That's kind of what the, what the Greek word connotes, right? Coming out of your, your gut, right? That deep feeling that almost hurts. Jesus' heart is going out to the crowds. He sees them and he cares for them very, very deeply. He is moved by the sad state he finds them in. Right? This is a genuine response of Christ's perfect human emotion that mirror the very way that God views his people, albeit in an anthropomorphic kind of way. We read in Hosea 11.8, God speaking to Israel, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Right? There's that deep, deep compassion that comes from within. Jesus has a genuine love and care for the crowds that gather to hear him or, or to be healed by him, but it is the state of the crowds in this case, right? The condition of the crowds that, that moves Christ to have this response. Matthew tells us that the crowds are harassed and helpless. They are harassed and helpless, literally torn and thrown down. They're, they're in a sorry state, not just physically, but more important, spiritually. They're confused, vulnerable, led astray, taken advantage of. 
Uh, Jesus sees crowds of people who ultimately are in danger of hell, uh, who, who are in danger of being condemned for their sins by a just and holy God, thinking that they might earn God's favor through good works, but not realizing God judges by His standard, not ours. They are lost. Maybe you can relate to these crowds. But Jesus has a kindness and a compassion for these crowds, and Jesus has a kindness and a compassion for you. These crowds, harassed and helpless, Matthew tells us, are like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. That's a powerful analogy. Have you seen what sheep do when there's no shepherd? They just go here, there, and everywhere. And this harkens back to several Old Testament passages which describe the complete failure of Israel's religious and political leadership. Moses understood the importance of good leadership amongst God's people. In light of his impending death, he asked God in Numbers 27 to appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. And that man, of course, was Joshua. But Moses knew that without faithful leaders, God's people would be like sheep without a shepherd. Perhaps no better reference exists, typifies this phrase, uh, than, than Ezekiel 34. Turn there briefly with me. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 6 is where we'll be reading Here's what we see being said to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. The people in Ezekiel's day, we're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in Ezekiel's day, the priests and kings had neglected the people entirely. They had turned away from God's law, from what they had been commanded to do. As we see there, they have not bound up, they have not healed, strengthened, brought back. None of the things they were supposed to do as good shepherds of God's people, they hadn't done any of that. But they had turned to selfish gain and idolatry. And the people suffered as a result. Ezekiel describes them as really slaughtering the sheep themselves, right? Being left for the wild animals. And in Jesus' day, things were very similar. Instead of teaching the people God's pure law and the heart of God's law, the Pharisees added laws of their own. Instead of seeking to maintain a righteous priesthood in obedience to God, the priesthood had become an office that was bought and sold to illegitimate people not descended from Aaron, and it was really a political office. 
the Sadducees, another Jewish religious party, were often involved with religious compromises with Gentiles and rejected much of the Old Testament's teaching on resurrection, angels, etc. The king in the land, right, the Herodian dynasty, King Herod, he was harsh, unscrupulous, and an idol worshiper. What we read in Ezekiel 34 is so descriptive of the state of things in Jesus' day. The priests and kings in the land had turned from God and His Word, and the people were left without shepherds to feed them, to strengthen them, to help them, to watch over them, to guide them in true righteousness. They had no compassion for the crowds. None at all. But here is Jesus. When Jesus sees the crowds, He sees the response that a true priest, a true prophet, a true king of Israel should have caring deeply for God's people, being distressed at the state that they are in, moved to compassion for them who have been mistreated and left without the leadership God intended. Jesus displays for us what should have been the case, the heart of Israel's leaders, where it should have been. He has compassion for them, and that compassion that Jesus has for the lost actually moves him into action for their sake. We see next Christ's call to evangelism. Christ's call to evangelism in verses 37 and 38. And whenever Jesus encounters a problem or a displeasing situation in Scripture, he does something about it. He never ignores it, but he deals with it. After seeing the crowds, after being moved to this compassion, because they are lost, he speaks to his disciples, as we see in verse 37. He, he calls them to consider the state of the crowds as well, and, and the illustration moves from a, a flock of sheep to a field that's ripe for harvest. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In light of the lost crowds, Jesus says three things to his disciples in order to call them to consider the importance of spreading the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. First, Jesus tells them the harvest is plentiful. He tells them the harvest is plentiful. Right? Jesus has gone through one little corner of the globe, right, Galilee, and he has seen countless people in need of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Some have heard it from him, some have not, and others need to hear it again. Jesus' point here in this illustration, in this, this analogy, is that there are many who need and will believe the gospel. The harvest, of course, refers to those who will be saved. And, and of course, in Jesus' day, there were crowds gathering to hear and see him, right? So easy for him to say. What about in our day, when, when secularism seems to be overtaking American society? Is the harvest still plentiful? Well, uh, yes, it is. Consider some statistics. 52% of American Christians think they are saved by their good works. That's a mission field. On top of that, 25% of Americans are completely religiously unaffiliated. That's not even to consider other world religions. So yes, in America, there is still much harvesting to be done. There are still people who need to hear the gospel. There are still people who think they understand the gospel but really have not grasped the first aspect of it. 
And with the amount of people growing up unchurched, right, which happens more and more and more, there are so many who do not know the first thing about who Jesus is, what he taught or what he did. I am amazed, right, in conversations with people, just asking, hey, what do you think the main point of Christianity is? What's the main message? It is shocking to hear people's responses because I don't think I've ever gotten, just from a stranger, right, I've never gotten, well, it's that we're sinners, but Christ died for our sins, and by faith in Christ and through God's grace alone, I can be saved. It's always, yeah, you know, Jesus was cool and be a better person, right? That's, that's the usual deal, right? So yes, America in and of itself is ripe for the harvest. What about outside of America? Ethnos 360, a missionary organization, estimates that nearly 42% of people globally, it's about 3 billion people, have minuscule to no access to the gospel. That's after centuries of missionaries. That's with social media and global communication. 42% of the global population has not even encountered the gospel. Right? Think about that for a second. Almost half of the world's population has not even heard about Jesus. So yes, there is a plentiful harvest. There is a field that is ready to be harvested. Now, from our perspective, it may not look plentiful, right? From our perspective, we don't see people becoming Christians at the rate like we would hope. But that doesn't mean God is not doing things elsewhere, and it doesn't mean that there is not still work for us to do here. All right, consider William Carey. He labored for six years before one person believed the gospel. Six years. By 1821, nearly 30 years after he had started his work, the missionary had only 700 converts, which compared to the population of India is very, very small. But that was only a fraction of those in India who would later come to believe in Jesus through the work of men like Carey or Adoniram Judson. And today there's nearly 30 million Christians in India, but in a country of 1.4 billion, there's still a great harvest to be had there too. However, while there's so many people needing the gospel, Jesus says something concerning to his disciples next. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, in Jesus' immediate context, what's he saying to his disciples? He's saying that he alone cannot reach all the people in Judea and Galilee who need the gospel, right? After all, he is God, but he is God in the flesh. He has the same limitations of a human body that you and I do. We can only be in one place at a time. More are needed to bring this message to those who need to hear it. More laborers are needed. But again, what about our day? Are there many laborers now, right? Have, have we as the disciples of Jesus gotten his point throughout the centuries? Uh, well, it's true there have been increased efforts in world missions. Praise God for that. But again, let's consider some statistics. A recent study showed that 66% of Christians in America have no idea how to share the gospel with a non-believer. Two-thirds of Christians don't know where to start in sharing the gospel with somebody who doesn't know it. Or, or they think they don't, right? They think they have no idea how to share the gospel. 70% of American Christians have not shared the gospel with a stranger in the past six months. 72% have not shared the gospel with family or friend in the past six months. 57% uh, of American Christians have not invited an unchurched person to church in the past six months. And that's six months, realistically, that's probably the normal percentage for a year. Where do you fall in those numbers? If these numbers are true, American Christians are failing 
in personal evangelism. There are still few laborers in the American harvest, and globally the picture is not much better. There's about 435,000 missionaries, but that's from any generally branded Christian denomination, right? Protestant, Catholic, et cetera, et cetera, around the world. But only one out of 30 of those missionaries go to unreached people groups. The rest go to work with already Christian people. One out of 30 going to unreached people groups. The laborers are few. Now, both the global mission field and the domestic mission field are important. There's still so much work to be done there, and it's true. Not every Christian is called to go overseas to share the gospel. Right? God does not order the steps of our lives in every single case that way. But on the other hand, every Christian, even you and me, every Christian is called to share the gospel somewhere. Just considering those American statistics about the lack of evangelism, why there are so few laborers, let's consider some of, of the reasons that people give in their hesitancy to evangelize. Right? Maybe you can relate to some of these. First, I don't know how. I have no idea how to share the gospel with somebody. I don't know where to start. I don't know enough. I don't know the right words. Has that been an obstacle for you before? Let me tell you that, ironically, some of the most effective evangelists are brand new Christians who have no idea what they're doing. They don't know any of the right lingo. They just know they love Jesus, Jesus saved them, they love other people, and they want them to know Jesus too. It's as simple as that, right? We can always grow in our wisdom and our ability to evangelize, our, our skills, we could say. But if you've believed the gospel, you can communicate the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you can communicate the gospel. Yeah, you're going to do it imperfectly. That's a guarantee. You're, you're not going to get it, the perfectly packaged gospel presentation every single time. But, but brothers and sisters, here's the thing. God's grace to people who don't know Jesus does not depend on your ability to use the right, you know, the right words. Words matter. The message matters. But you don't have to get it perfectly right. You don't have to be eloquent, in other words, to be an effective evangelist. Right? His grace in the gospel does not depend on your skill set, but on His will. So if you don't know how, let me encourage you, you do know how. That's probably not actually your main obstacle to evangelism. It's probably not ignorance. It's probably this one. This is the most common one, I think. I'm too scared or I'm an introvert. Right? They kind of go hand in hand. I'm too scared or I'm an introvert. Right? I, I think that introvert and extrovert labels are, those are fine, right? God makes us all different. We all have different personalities and temperaments. Uh, but brothers and sisters, in, in all honesty, much of this reason, right, when we say I, I'm an introvert or I'm too scared or I'm just not a people person, much of that reason is, is not actually driven by personality. It is driven by a sinful fear of man. Let's just be honest for a second. It is driven by, an, uh, an, uh, most of the time, right, a sinful fear of man. We're scared to evangelize because we don't want the other person to think certain things about us. We're scared to evangelize because we don't want them to say certain mean things to us. We can end up being more concerned about rejection than we are about the eternal destiny of a person's soul. Our comfort zone is more important to us than somebody not hearing about the Lord of glory and what he has done for them. Shame on us.
Number three, I don't know unbelievers. I don't know unbelievers. I don't, I don't know anybody to evangelize. Why not? Why don't you know unbelievers? Right? Certainly all of your neighbors are not Christians. Unless you live on a commune somewhere or something. I don't know. Start there. Start there. Jesus came to seek the lost. And in a way, shouldn't we do the same? Number four, I'm not gifted in evangelism. Have you ever thought that? I'm, not, I'm just not gifted in evangelism. Me neither. And I'm not either. But just because you and I may not be gifted in an extraordinary way doesn't mean we are now exempt from the concern and responsibility that we have as Christians to share the gospel with other people. You may not be gifted in hospitality. You may not be gifted in teaching. But that doesn't mean you should never show hospitality or that you should never tell people true things from God's word. Why do we put evangelism in its own little isolated category, right? Again, I think it goes back to some other reasons, maybe. Just because we're gifted does not mean that we're exempt. Number five, God is sovereign. He'll save his, his elect with or without my evangelism. Uh, this is more often thought. I know very few people who would actually say this out loud, but it is more often inside a common attitude among Reformed people today demonstrated by our lack of evangelism. And this should not be the case. This should not be the case. In fact, William Carey was a staunch Calvinist. He was a staunch Calvinist, right? But that only enhanced his evangelistic zeal. It didn't dampen it. He was so convinced that God will work because God is sovereign that he said, I just want to be used and I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. His Reformed theology, which again I think is biblical, Right? actually stirred him to evangelize more, not less. Because what we must understand is that God works through means. God uses people. And that kind of mentality, right, uh, that, that God will just do what he'll do whether he wants to use me or not so I don't have to do anything, that doesn't make you more trusting in God's sovereignty. Okay? That's a cop-out. It makes you more useless in his hands is what it does at the end of the day. So really, the reason that there are so few laborers in the harvest, most of the time, comes down to our sinful hearts. That's what it comes down to, right? Because we are, we are afraid of being rejected by other people. We have an attachment to comfort. We have right, too busy of a schedule to even think about evangelism. Right? We have all our, our excuses. And we can come up with a really long list. But as we see in verse 38, this is not an acceptable situation to Jesus. Jesus is not content that there are so few laborers. Jesus is not pleased by that. So finally, Jesus in verse 38 instructs his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus instructs his disciples first and foremost to start with prayer, but with some specific guidelines here. So first Jesus tells them to whom they should pray, the Lord of the harvest. The Lord of the harvest. This is, of course, God. He is the one that owns the proverbial field, to continue the analogy. He is the one who is in charge of the harvest, the one who is sovereign. It is to him that the disciples and we are to pray. Prayerless evangelism, to speak humanly, is powerless evangelism. Now, Jesus also tells his disciples what they should pray for. That the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus' disciples, we, are to beseech the Lord to send out 
workers, to send out missionaries, to send out evangelists into the world in order that they would preach the gospel, in order that the elect would hear it, yes, and believe it and be saved. Send out the laborers, Lord. Brothers and sisters, how often do we neglect Jesus' instruction here? And this isn't just the general second person application, but even we as a church. We've neglected to pray, as we should, from the pulpit during elder prayer time or in our fellowship group times, right? In the way that Jesus tells us here, how often we neglect to pray for the advance of the gospel in Carson City, in Nevada, in America, in the world. How often are we so consumed with our own problems that we forget there are people alive today who have not heard the gospel? And we're okay with that. How often do we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers? How often do we pray to Rattan in India, to Fali in Madagascar? How often do we pray for the shoebox that we may be sending for Operation Christmas Child? How common it is that our own prayers so often ignore this component of Jesus' teaching. But how easy it is to do what Jesus says. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Just, just practically, what would that look like? Taking a sticky note, writing down the names of the missionaries we support, writing down Operation Christmas Child, writing down the names of people that you know, that don't know Jesus, that you want to see come to Christ. Just putting that sticky note on your mirror, on your dashboard, when you see it, pray. How easy it would be to obey Jesus here. Jesus also reminds us at the end of verse 38, that the harvest belongs to the Lord. Send out laborers into his harvest. He has ownership of it. It is his. Ultimately, the Lord is the one who sends out the laborers. And I, I do love here that Jesus both focuses on the practical call to evangelism as well as the reminder that we need of God's sovereignty over evangelism and salvation as well. You see, God owns the field. He will ensure the harvest is completed. There won't be a corner of the field that was overlooked due to human error. God will ensure his harvest is fully reaped. But we must not view the fact that it is his as an excuse for laziness. Right? Again, God works through means. He chooses, and how gracious of him to do so. He chooses us to spread the gospel. He does ordinary things, one person telling another the message of eternal life in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. How simple that is. But what an amazing thing that we get to participate in. Now, God knows who will be saved. We don't know that when we have a conversation with somebody. We have no idea. We don't know, right? To quote a saying often attributed to Spurgeon, if God would have painted a yellow stripe on the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts, right? Uh, but since he didn't, since he didn't, I must preach whosoever will. Right, whosoever will believe. And when whosoever believes, I know that he's one of the elect. We are called to preach to all who will listen. We must recognize that both the harvest, it requires both labor and laborers. Right? It requires both. But at the same time, the harvest ultimately belongs to the Lord. There is no contradiction or incompatibility with these two truths that we are called as those who are to pray, right, and even labor in evangelism, and that God is sovereign over that. There's no incompatibility. There's no contradiction there. 
Now, as we look at this text, Jesus, it's true, he doesn't explicitly command his disciples to go out and become laborers. Right? He doesn't do that anywhere. He, he gives them one command, which is pray. I can hear you know, some sighs of relief coming out there. Oh, all I got to do is pray. I could do that. Right? But there's something that you need to know. There's a little fine print disclaimer here. When you pray for more laborers, prepare to be the answer to the prayer. Okay? <laughs> Look what happens right at the beginning of chapter 10. Right after Jesus tells his disciples, pray for the laborers to go out. Verse 5. He's got his disciples, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. Right after Jesus tells them to pray, he sends them to go do the very work of a laborer in the harvest. So yes, we should pray, God, send out laborers, but expect to be one of those laborers. Uh, brothers and sisters, we cannot put the burden of evangelism and missions only on the shoulders of others that we think are more gifted or positioned for that kind of work. If you have the ability to verbally communicate with other people at any level, at any level, right? even small children can be evangelists. And often they have no reservation about other people hearing about Jesus, right? Which again, reveals the problem is in our hearts. But if you have the ability to verbally communicate with other human beings and you believe in the gospel, you're able to share with other people, congratulations, you're certified as a laborer. You're, you're ready to go. So pray deeply, pray regularly, and go out into the harvest. Our brothers and sisters, we need to ask ourselves some questions. After all, what was it that motivated Jesus to send out his disciples? What was it that motivated him to call them to evangelize? It was his compassion for them. It was his compassion for them. That should be the primary motivator at a human level for our evangelism, right? All things we do for the chief end of glorifying God, right? That's, that's the umbrella over everything is God's glory. But why would I go up to a person and tell them, right? If I'm evangelizing them for God's glory and I have no compassion for them, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's not how Jesus preached the gospel and neither should we. So, we need to ask, do I have true compassion for the lost like Jesus? And not in the condescending kind of way, like I'm a Christian, I know the truth, those poor people, they don't, I don't bring it to them. But a genuine compassion for them in light of the potential that they may die in their sins, never hearing of the forgiveness that Jesus can provide by faith. Do we have compassion for the lost even in our politically charged day? Do we view people who don't know Jesus or who are maybe even hostile to Jesus and the Christian message as opponents and enemies or as those made in God's image who need to believe and repent in Jesus Christ? What's the first category that pops into our mind when we look at other people? Do we actually care about the harvest? Or are we content with our tight-knit Christian social bubble? Are we willing to pray, to give, to participate in evangelism and world missions? Jesus emphasizes these things. Do we? Do we? And if you find yourself going, no, you know, I really, I really do struggle with compassion for the lost. Or, you know, I think I have just become content only knowing Christians and only ever talking to Christians and having a safe bubble, right? And again, Christian fellowship is, is wonderful. We're, we're commanded to it. 
But if you find yourself realizing, oh, you know what? Man, I really do fear the rejection of other people. I really do prize my comfort over compassion for the lost and evangelism. Well, as we did this morning, confess that to the Lord. That's sin at the end of the day, right? Confess that to the Lord. Be reminded of his grace for you. Be reminded of the gospel. And ask for the Lord to give you that compassion that you may lack. Ask the Lord to give you that boldness that you may lack. Ask the Lord to give you that faithfulness that you may lack. Ask him to give those opportunities that you may lack. It is God's will that we would evangelize people that do not know Jesus Christ. And if you are sincerely wanting to grow in that, I am very skeptical God will answer no to those prayers. William Carey has a strong exhortation for us to consider. Only obedience rationalizes prayer. Only missions can redeem your intercessions from insincerity. Convicting words. Convicting words but ones that are uh, worth considering for us, especially as we go into Operation Christmas Child now, as we uh, are going to be taking a missions offering here in a few weeks. Consider Jesus' words. Right? These are ways that we can participate in that, but don't neglect the opportunities that are right at your feet day to day. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Lord, we confess that in many ways we have failed in our evangelism by simply failing to evangelize at all. Father, if, if that is us, if we have neglected the great commission for the sake of our own comfort, forgive us, Lord. Help us to place that aside and to consider both the cost of being a disciple but also the urgency We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over the harvest. And Lord, it is for that reason that we may have sleep at night at all. But Father, we also see that you command us to participate in this great work, that you would use us for your glory, that you would use us to bring the gospel message to others who do not know it. Open our eyes to those opportunities, Lord. We, we pray that you would help us to see them and to seize them. Trusting you, Lord, seeking to be as faithful as we can in our words, in the way that we represent you and, uh, Lord, the gospel message itself. But at the end of the day, and trusting that you are the one who will use that message according to your will. Father, we do pray as we get ready for Operation Christmas Child, Lord, that we would consider the value of that. That it is not only evangelism, but that there is local church discipleship that happens there as well when those shoeboxes are given, Lord. We pray for Folly, for Rattan, our, our missionaries that we support, Lord. We pray that you would bring them more laborers in those countries where they labor themselves. That the name of Jesus and the gospel of grace would go forth. And that many would believe it. And that there would be a great harvest there. Father, help us to be more mindful of those missionaries that we support, praying regularly for them, both corporately and privately. And Father, we pray for northern Nevada, one of the more unchurched places, one of the more uh, unchristian places in the United States. Father, may we not be content with that. 
stir us up as individuals, stir us up as a church to consider the reality of a plentiful harvest all around us. So, Lord, may we pray and may we labor for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.